What's up? I hope you're doing well. Today's episode was super fun for me. I talked to Tony Naj, Tony Baloney on Facebook and TikTok. Tony makes entertaining, interpretive dance, philosophical content on TikTok. She makes comedy content on Facebook and uh, kind of a rising star right now on the social media space and she's got a message she's well read she's fun she's got good energy and i hope she continues to do what she does and yeah this this was a joy we got to explore um each other's ideas in a fun way and i hope you enjoy tony Naj. Tony Naj, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so I kind of have an understanding of who you are. You're you're a comedian, you're a filmmaker, you're you're a blogger, you're creative. But I, I kind of wanted to ask you if you would uh, give me kind of a an introduction of of all the the things you're into. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> I think ultimately, I would love to define myself as a philosopher. And everything I do is just trying to investigate a philosophical inquiry of culture, society, our minds, our health, media, our programming, our conditioning. So my whole approach to my comedy and to my artistic endeavors is always through that lens of philosophical questioning and inquiry. Um, So that's kind of what drives me. And I've just experimented with every single medium and platform I possibly could of which to express this desire to philosophically deconstruct the world. Awesome. So that definitely changes a little bit the direction um, (laughs) that I think we can go with this. Because, well, I think it's awesome that... uh, that you're going for it in that way, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, it seems like you kind of started like your creative outlet through the internet, at least through like blogging back, maybe when blogging was like a little, was like the big thing on the internet. Like I've, I've saw blogs as old as like 2010. Um, and maybe there were older ones than that talking about, um, kind of parenting and, maybe some of these proto ideas that you've developed a lot further since then. Um, I found you through TikTok and kind of your, your body morphic form of <laughs> presenting philosophical ideas, which I think is um, fun. It's, it's, I've, I've felt like it was tongue in cheek toward some of the, you know, trends, I guess, on TikTok, but it really seems to be working for you. Um, let's, uh, since you went with philosopher as kind of the label, if, since I pushed for a label, um, when did you start comedy and when did you start philosophy? Like when and how did those two things start? Well, I think as any person that's, um, entering into their adult 
world and their adult self. I was, you know, 19 years old and I did not know what I wanted out of life. But after I graduated high school, I did a program called City Year. And City Year is like an AmeriCorps program. It's kind of similar or akin to Peace Corps in the United States. And so when I did that, I spent a year of my life doing social service uh, as an 18-year-old high school graduate in Seattle, Washington, and spending that time doing service, helping kids, um, you know, being a part of a awareness around systemic problems and systemic racism and systemic sexism and all of these live issues that I had been basically sheltered from as a teenager. Not that I wasn't aware intellectually of inequality or problems in society, but I didn't put together the pieces of how these problems are designed and how people are basically put into institutions and structures that oppress them. Because, you know, when I was in school, they would just teach you, oh, slavery. Yeah, the North knew slavery wasn't any good. So that's why they got rid of it. And the North won the Civil War. And I went to a pretty good school. And even at that time, I was like, that sounds wrong. But I still was believing the mainstream narrative about how society functioned. And so when I was at City Year and I was seeing with my own eyes something deeper, it changed me fundamentally because I realized I realized privilege in a more profound way. So when it was time to go to college, I was like, this is the most extreme privilege. I'm just going to go spend four years of my life educating myself and I'm not accountable to anyone else except for my own mind. Like that seemed so um, like semi-entitled and also just such a vast opportunity that I took college so seriously. I would not say I had the same approach to high school at all. I was, you know, doing a lot of doing a lot of drugs and making a lot of bad decisions, but college I was like this is real. And so I got into philosophy because I was studying ancient Greek because I just didn't know myself yet. I didn't know what to do. So I was like, I'll take an ancient Greek class. And my professor um, was like this old – he was kind of like the quintessential professor that you would think of if you were to draw a picture of a professor. You know, he had like a white crazy hair and like a beard and his pants were never on correctly. Like his belt was askew, you know, and his eyes were never fully open and he would fall asleep in class while teaching. But he was like amazing and he and I started studying philosophy together because I had a um, – a type of school where you did conference work one-on-one with a professor. And so I started reading all the dialogues of Plato and Socrates in ancient Greek. And that is what set me onto that path. And um, I just have this memory of him once. I was a senior in college and I was like weeping because my boyfriend had broken up with me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a boyfriend. And he um, was like, an old man, you know, (laughs) didn't know how to like console a young woman. And he was like, well, Tony, you can't just study philosophy. You have to live your life philosophically. And that one sentence changed my life because I was like, oh, I get it. I have to actually 
bring this into practice. And so I think your question was about comedy, how comedy eventually folded into that, which is comedy is the ultimate way to connect to people and to distill information that isn't going to threaten them. So that's why I chose comedy as my um, medium. And also I just like love comedy. I'm just a, you know, a goofy person in general. Yeah, that's cool. That's early exposure to, you know, some some bedrock stuff, at least in terms of Western philosophy. Um, so what did you do right out of college? Like, did you pursue comedy? Did you pursue creative stuff? Like what? I wanted to change the world, you know? So I was really into social activism and uh, voter engagement and getting young people to be involved in politics and the nonprofit sector. And I think that um, I had a lot of big visions and a lot of big goals, but I was very naive in terms of how the world works and how um, how being a young woman in the world worked as well. You know that I had like lots of circumstances where I'd be like, oh my God, how did I end up in this hotel room? You know, like, fuck, like this wasn't what I had planned. Like I I really did not understand a lot of how to work with the complexity of capitalism and how it drives people, right? And so I wanted to be in the nonprofit world, but then eventually I came to discover that the nonprofit world is basically a tool of capitalism and it helps it to thrive. Oopsie. In this <laughs> he fell. In this way that I hadn't originally anticipated. You know, you think like, oh, the nonprofit sector, everyone's there to just to help people, but um, it's a way of pushing social services to a private sector. And it's a way of kind of pushing externalities of business into a private sector. And what I learned about the nonprofit world with a private foundation, this isn't for all foundations, but anything that's a private foundation, they are investing, you know, 95% of their equity in the stock market. And then they're giving away 5% a year. And that's what keeps the foundation going is their investments in the stock market. And I was like, I'm confused because we're trying to do all this environmental work or social work. And then we're just putting money into the very businesses that are undoing the environmental and the social work. And that, to me, I was like heartbroken when I heard that. And that's not to say there aren't organizations that are doing really important stuff. There 100% are, but the entire system of how like foundations work and how nonprofits are competing against each other for grants and it's almost destined for failure. It's like how can the nonprofit sector compete with the business world that's creating the problems the nonprofit sector is like trying to solve? It's just an impossibility. So I began to feel very like futile in that world. So when when is this taking place, like timeline-wise, just so I can kind of – Oh, this is the 2000s. Um, 2000s. Okay. Yeah. And the comedy kind of came out of – or the creative side of me was I found out I had a brain tumor. And the interesting thing about your health, and I've heard this from multiple people, is that if you are a creative person and you are not – 
expressing your creativity or exploring your creativity in some means, your creativity will start to eat you alive and it will make you sick. And like for me personally, that was very true. I wasn't, I didn't even see myself as a particularly creative person person at a certain point. I didn't know that about myself. I had to uncover it. And it was through dealing with this brain tumor and that putting me on a holistic path. You know, I I really wanted to explore holistic healing and alternative medicine and energy work. And I did many different, many different energy work modalities. I mean, I can't even tell you. I I went on a raw food diet. I would do sound healing vibrations. I drank ayahuasca with a shaman. I did meditation. I did so many things, but it was through that that I began to awaken the writer in me. And I think it all began first with with writing. And so that's where it started was me wanting to write. And then the writing began into the filmmaking. So they kind of intersected. And I think comedy, you know, my problem with the intellectual world is that there's so much posturing on proving your intelligence, right? And there's like a whole language that comes with academia or business or anything. And that language I feel like is an intentional device to push people away and to be like, you're not a part of this group. You don't know the language. You don't know what a pro forma is. So you're a fucking idiot and you can't do a business. And I wanted to communicate on like a heart level to people. And I didn't want to try to prove anything about myself that I was smart or I was worthy or I was intelligent. I wanted to just be funny because if you're funny, you connect, I think, on a spirit level. So I guess the only thing I'm trying to prove is that like I can be funny sometimes. I don't have to be funny all the time, but that's why I think comedy is such an interesting device is because – if you're trying to be funny, you're actually not that funny. So you you have to just right surrender, right? Yeah, that's fascinating. There's there's a lot there. Um, so, and just before, because I want to, uh, I guess, address a few things in that that um, moment you just shared. Do you read a lot? I want to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, I figured. I figured. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, I just kind of started reading a lot to get into these topics that that we're talking about because I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And during COVID, it was like, okay, I have to I have to talk about these things that are inside me growing because the creativity thing. So addressing that first, um, I think that's fascinating. The eat you alive thing because creativity is like you know, symbol symbolically in like Western philosophy, it's like the chaos, right? Creativity comes out of like the chaos realm. So it's like, um, if you, and the chaos is like, it can be the, the creative element or it can be the destructive consuming element and it can, it can consume you. So that's fascinating that like reversal, I guess. Um, there's, I thought it was really cool after you're talking about creativity and you were like, I had to bring out the writer in me. That was kind of mm. like, to me, that was like a Joycean moment. It was like, it's <laughs> like the right hemisphere, you know, <laughs> like, like our R-I-G-H-T-E-R, like a writer um, yeah. to express that, that creativity that, that wanted to get out. Um, I feel like there was something else in there 
that I'm missing now. But um, yeah, I think I think ultimately what it feels like to me, and, and this is I, I want to get your views on this. Um, well, first, have you ever read McLuhan, any of McLuhan or heard of at all? No. Okay. No. Tell okay. me. Yeah, so McLuhan is this like um, super underrated intellectual dude from like the 50s, essentially, 50s and 60s. And he's like the reason we call the media the media. Like, um, Oh, oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Does he, he talk about Edward Bernays too? Um, no. So Okay, you keep going and then I'll tell you. Okay, yeah. yes. So um, I only know Edward Bernays through like the Century of Self documentary, which is like a PBS or something, but um, that's like Freud's nephew or whatever, right? Mm. Yeah. So, and maybe he's really the reason we call him the media, but McLuhan came out with this idea that technology is an extension of ourselves and that each technology is extending a different aspect of ourselves. So like a wheel is an extension of a foot, um, like a, a trailer is an extension of our back, this chair is an extension of my butt, like stuff, um, you know, radio is an extension of the ear and voice kind of a thing. Um, but his idea was that it's not the content that's on TikTok that makes that makes the difference, but it's TikTok itself. It's the medium itself makes way more of an impact. So he said like the media is the message and that was like his like, but anyway, he had this really unique way of writing and this really unique way of like answering interview questions. And he spoke very like, people would ask him like, why do some people have trouble understanding what you mean? And he was like, that's because I use my right hemisphere and everyone's used to using their left. So he's like, I'm, I'm painting a picture like poetically and everyone else wants step-by-step logic timelines of like, here's one idea. Once you understand that, then you can understand this idea and building on, you know what I mean? That like pyramid of ideas uh, that the left brain likes to create. So um, anyways, he had this idea that TV was shifting us back because um, that was like the big medium of his day was television was pretty new. So he thought TV was going to make us, was going to retribalize the West. Um, and essentially we were going to shift from left brain, like book culture, mechanical, you know, assembly line culture, where we're all like um, a machine. We all kind of create this machine, which you could, you know, extend that to capitalism as a system. And we're going back to bicameral, like oral culture. Um using both sides of our brain. So um, trying to find a question in that. But uh, I don't know. I guess what I was trying to get at was like that, that like intellectualism as a device to separate, that seems like a left brain endeavor. Do you have any thoughts on like bringing creativity and right brain into intellectual space? Well, I think what you're saying about this thinker is that this idea that's actually quite platonic because Socrates often spoke about how books are the death of dialogue. And so he was actually a proponent 
for non-books to not write things down, which sounds counterintuitive, but according to Socrates, dialogue was where true wisdom came from. And when you read a book, it's like there's not only a hierarchy or a power structure, as in I am the expert, I have something in a book, and then you are reading it and you are downloading the information I'm telling you is true, but also I cannot communicate with a book, I cannot... Yeah. put my input into the book. I can't ask questions to the book. So I am just a passive receiver of information rather than an active participant. And so for Socrates, for him, dialogue was what was most crucial in order to be on the pursuit of wisdom. Because as we all know, wisdom is knowing that you know nothing, but going on the journey towards knowledge anyway. So I think what is interesting about TikTok and social media, even though this can also be the demise is the ability to have conversation and dialogue and comments and have videos responding to each other and having this living, breathing organism that grows beyond what people can anticipate or what people can control. And that is a really interesting aspect of it is the community and the ability to interact. But unfortunately, a lot of times that's abused because people can be incredibly cruel to one another or they can be very didactic or they can be stuck in their own eco chamber or fortress of opinions that they don't want anyone else to penetrate. But I do think the potential to have progressive dialogue is there. And I do think that social media and TikTok, um, YouTube, all of these platforms are in a way the perfect model to explore that. We just haven't shown the maturity to do it to its full potential, but I do think it's happening. I do think it's happening on a certain level, and I I love what you're talking about. I want to read this guy's book. (laughs) Yeah, so understanding media is kind of like his um, big one that everyone was trying to grapple with back in like 1964 or something. But um, yeah, passivity and activity of the book and all that was a bit part of his thing too. He called it a hot medium versus a cool medium. And a hot, a hot medium is one that you don't interact with. You just receive it. And he basically went into why like um, what that's done to culture. So like, for example, the radio is a very hot medium. You just receive this voice and it becomes your inner voice in a way. And when the radio was huge is when, you know, Hitler and Stalin and all these kind of characters made their ascent. And even like Nixon, like there was a big argument and McLuhan got interviewed a lot about this. Like he basically said like Nixon, I think Nixon lost an election before he was president. Maybe it was Nixon Kennedy. Was that the, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's like, Kennedy has a better image. And now that television is at scale, Kennedy will, will win if, if they keep putting them on television together because Nixon's more of a, a radio voice anger kind of guy, you know, but anyways, um, back to the, also it's like, oh, sorry, but it's like brand, it's like branding, you know? So when you're branding around a voice, around a radio, around a frequency, you can brand the voice. But if you're branding around visuals, you have to brand the good looks and America is a brand. It's, it's corporation. So I can see why, you know, our branding is done through who we choose or who they choose or however presidents are actually chosen. That's part of the American brand for sure. Well, and part of it might be baked into their form, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Kennedy's genetics versus 
who who Nixon is and and who his lineage is and all that. It could be that kind of a thing. Um, but but to your point, it's like Trump was the ultimate social media icon. He was tweeting up a storm. So I really like the information you're bringing into my consciousness <laughs> about how the medium does shape our leaders and how that I do think that Twitter was the um, tipping point for Trump for sure. It could have been in a lot of ways the tipping point for the internet too because in a way like Trump's tweets in and of themselves weren't that interesting. It was the coverage of the tweets that made them something. So mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways... <laughs> the internet pulled all the value right out of like it pulled all it in, I guess the internet influenced TV to essentially broadcast it day and night saying like, you need to be on this internet thing, seeing what's happening. Cause this is what's important. Twitter's what's important. Mm. But um, yeah, it's and interesting. And also the, the comedy of his tweets sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, like I would, he would say things and you'd be like, what? You know, but it was like there was a hilariousness, absurdity to it. Yeah. That was another mm -hmm. thing. That was the other thing I wanted to mention. Um, uh, I'm reading Joseph Campbell's um, oh, mm. Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, yes. And uh, it's interesting that the the trickster comedy is always attributed to um, the God figure in pretty much every culture that's not monotheistic. So every God figure, except in, you know, the three biggest religions in the world, um, have two sides to them. They're both very serious yet like accepting of the divine comedy. You know what I mean? Accepting of the, maybe the futility or the, the comedy in in tragedy and, you know, benevolence, I guess. But, um, so I like, I guess to tie that back to you, I like that as, as an approach, like I am a philosopher, I really do want to change the world. And also I'm going to keep the comedy in like with me as I go. Um, sorry to, to go to the, to the McLuhan stuff though. It's interesting because he talks about corporate and this is kind of maybe like as corporations, because, I don't know, corporations are relatively new. Like, most corporations aren't older than 100 years old. You know what I mean? There's, like, a handful that are. But he used the, the word corporate to mean, like, all-encompassing of, like, kind of your senses. So he describes, like, television as, like, a corporate medium where nowadays if you read that, you're like, oh, yeah, corporations run it. But it's not what he meant at all. And um, I think it was just someone discussing McLuhan was saying how America used to be this very individualistic, leave me alone culture in like, let's call it the 19th century and earlier. And um, it wasn't until these electronic mediums like the telegraph, radio, whatever came into play where like the tribal aspect of like a human being came back into play through a, like the corporation was this representation of kind of um, the death of the individual in America in a way. So I don't know. Um, it's interesting too, because corporations have now become brands, like you said, and they're kind of images like Nike. Nike could not be the swoosh, 
without TV, like TV forces low definition images. I don't know that. Yeah, but it's funny because Nike could, wouldn't be Nike without Michael Jordan either. There was this personification that these companies have done where they find these iconic figures of which to sponsor and yeah. attach themselves to. And then what we connect to with corporate culture are the personalities that they have intertwined within them and the identity that, you know, it's like an Apple person versus a PC person, an yeah. iPhone versus an Android, you know, uh, even I, I'm sure like PlayStation versus Xbox, you know, like maybe maybe people have them both, but because they're like gamers. Um, but I do think that corporate identity is really linked into personal identity, which is the same thing as political identity. Like yeah. I, I see a lot of people are affiliated with a party not necessarily because they're agreeing with all their party lines, but because they're not the other party. Yeah. So you're a Democrat more because you're not a Republican. And um, I think that the interesting thing about identity or wanting to be a part of a group is that in either scenario you're signing up for and you're allowing yourself to be taken away with the illusion that either of those things are significant or real, even though our human experience feels really real. Like if someone, if a man, if you were to say to me, gender's not real, it's a construct, I would be like, you can suck my D. You know, gender's very real, but you wouldn't be wrong. But my experience as a woman, my experience within my female body feels very real, although my gender construction is a complete construct. So I think there is this way in which we're always battling our personal experience with something with the whole meta idea that it's all just man-made creations that we've been programmed and conditioned to believe are more relevant, you know, like money or borders, you know, or all of these things that are just concepts. These are all concepts, and yet they feel so – a border feels very real if you're in Palestine, right? A border feels very real if you're a refugee. A border is not real. It's a idea. Right. The more, the more you explore these ideas, the more you realize that, like, it's a lot of work to maintain a border. It's a lot of work to maintain – these ideas. And that's, that's what the system is, right? It's, it's the thing of maintenance. And I didn't think of this until you just said that, but it's like, you kind of, if you, if you understand that the system is meant to maintain uh, borders, essentially, you know, both psychically and, you know, on the earth and whatever, at every level, there's different borders that need to be essentially constantly maintained. This is my intellectual property. This is my, 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 my. Um, you kind of have to go into it being like, okay, well, if I'm going to do the work to uphold these borders, what should I get in return? <laughs> and maybe that's the problem is just like a bunch of people are like, you know, I want, I want half or something. Like that's what everyone's going in. Like I want half of everything. Like that's, that's what Bezos is doing, right? He's like, I'll do everything for you, but like I want half. <laughs> so 
Right. And I, I love that. The system is about maintaining borders. I think that's really interesting. And you know, the irony is, is that what are we all genuinely looking for? Is we're looking for love, connection, happiness. And where do we think we're going to find it outside of ourselves? And this is why I brought up Bernays earlier is that he was the nephew of Freud and he understood more than most the depth of the existential hole of the human condition and that we are constantly looking for something outside of ourselves to fill this emptiness, this terror of our mortality, this terror of getting to know ourselves, this terror of facing our pain. And so if we can think that something material can take that pain away and can take that terror away, then we are the perfect cogs for a capitalist machine because we will want anything to satiate us, to be our pacifier, to rely on when the truth is, the sad truth is, is that we actually really don't need very much. We need love. We need food. We need shelter. We need connection and all of the other things, they don't aid to our happiness. They actually aid to our demise, even though it's really hard to think that way if you're in a place of lack and suffering. Mm -hmm. To illustrate Bernays's, um, you know, evil genius, I guess, uh, in this documentary, Century of Self, I think it was he essentially was working with Betty Crocker and you know, like the cake mixes, they were trying to sell those like box cake mixes back in like the thirties, forties, somewhere in there. Yes, I know this. And then they had the powdered eggs that made it so you didn't do enough. And so they were like, make the bitches add eggs yep. <laughs> and then they'll want, they'll want to make the cake. And so just the process of adding the eggs made you want to make cake, which just, I'm sorry, it just reminds me of like how all these housewives during that time were on methamphetamines. I mean, and I've just been thinking about methamphetamines a lot because I don't know if you've heard, um, there's a book about how a lot of the Nazis were on meth. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, interesting. Like the Nazis were on meth, housewives were on meth. And I don't know if you've ever done like Adderall, it's a lot like meth, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. Like the children are on meth. You know, it's, I do think there is like a major influence of stimulants in our lives in order to deal with the horror of culture. You know, I, I, I know I've done a video about this, but I, my favorite quote is that it's no measure of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. And so when you think about all the pharmaceuticals and the drugs and the meth and the intentional work of the pharmaceutical companies is that you take substances in order to deal with a very sick reality rather than doing the work to address the sickness of society. Yeah. Yeah. That's the drug thing is, is wild. Um, and I don't know, it seems like any day someone's going to make some groundbreaking documentary, but they're probably coming out every day and you just don't even see them anymore. <laughs> um, are you familiar with, with Terrence McKenna at all? Oh. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Terrence in a lot of ways was like, then was like Marshall McLuhan plus drugs. It was like, it was like Marshall McLuhan, only talked about technologies and how they 
influence societies. And Terrence was like, oh, drugs are technologies. So he went into just extending that one level further. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think we definitely have um, not a not okay relationship with with a lot of drugs that take more than they give. But what I'm so perplexed by is how is Silicon Valley microdosing all the time? Because I would think that like there would be a massive shift of the tech and business world that would be a mind-expanding opening. And I'm not really seeing that. I'm like, are, what are the mushrooms that Silicon Valley is on? You know, like that's slightly confusing to me because I would think that mushrooms would be all about a deeper human connection. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Are you? So they're mostly microdosing LSD, I think. And then the other thought is like, is I think there's probably an issue. Okay. So I have a, a direct relationship um, with a guy who microdoses and he does some creative video work. He owns a business and, um, uh, you know, I love this guy, but he has a huge ego, mm. huge ego. And my thought is like microdosing never takes the ego into question. And and this person does things uh, that mm-hmm. would this this person does things occasionally like he's done macrodoses in his past. He does things that for some bring the ego into question, but it's like. Um, and, and maybe I've been in this, like probably my first trip in college, like I came back probably with potentially a bigger ego than before, very much of the energy of like, I can do anything. So you have uh-huh. to like, you have to keep that in check. You have to take both perspectives of, um, protecting what, what's here and what came before you for the next generation while also, seeing that you can do anything. So then you have to take a look at that responsibly and say, with that knowledge, I'm the same as anybody else when they were 19 years old. Like, what should I do? That's the next question. Like, you can do anything. Mm. Cool. What should you do? So I think in Silicon Valley, microdosing could be the problem. It could be that their egos never are, are actually checked. So you're, you're taking the benefits of the psychedelics, which is like creativity, openness, mm. um, new connections, novelty, and then you're applying it with full steam ahead ego. You know what I mean? Yes. I love that analysis. I think that is really wise because it's funny. Um, you see that a lot in the spiritual community kind of as well, or people that go on different um, shamanic healings and then they seem to be doing it every weekend. And then you're like, what's going on? You know, or <laughs> are you okay? And I do think that you're correct is that the, the technology of drugs does not mean that you're going to approach it from a spiritual perspective. And it does not mean that you're necessarily going to have that ego annihilation unless you're open to it. And I know that for me personally, the biggest ego annihilator um, was a 10-day silent meditation retreat that I did. I've actually done it twice. And you would think after the, the first one that I would go back the second time and have 
more of my ego annihilated and it was like I was like shocked I was like oh my god it's still uh really profoundly in there you know so I think the whole process around facing the ego and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what the ego is too it's not just about you know having an egoic personality or arrogance it's literally believing that you are your identity and you are trapped in this one body in this one self like the ego is the I voice in your head and that I voice is really part of a collective. The the I is an illusion, you know, and that's really hard to admit and to see is that I am an illusion. My personality is an illusion. It's painful, but at the same time, it's so freeing because when you can really understand that everything you think is an illusion – and it doesn't really matter, then everything that everyone else thinks is an illusion and it doesn't really matter. And I can't tell you how free I felt as an artist and as a person and as a being on this earth to really be reminded that, oh my God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks because it doesn't matter what I think. And I was like, what? I'm okay. You're okay. Everyone's okay. Like it doesn't matter. And there is a nihilism that can come with that, you know, every once in a while, like I'll be like, oh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But there's also a deep, deep joy in that. It's a deep joy, you know? So, um, but it's hard to always be in that place. I mean, I think I'm always kind of teetering on like joy and uh, angst and then joy and angst and they're very neck and neck. Yeah. I think that's okay as long as um, I guess as long as you that I mean that starts to get to the whole question of like what should you do? It's like okay, and and I think it's I I like to say instead of it doesn't matter because I think you have to go and have those experiences to have that relationship with it doesn't matter that's like healthy. I think some people here, it doesn't matter. And it reinforces this like hole. The nihilism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think saying what I think and what you mean by that is what your left brain identity thinks doesn't mm-hmm. matter technically to the whole is different than saying just in general, in total, it doesn't matter. I think it it doesn't matter and it matters. It's like both, right? It's like a paradox. It's like everything matters because everything's connected. And then it's like you matter, I matter, we matter. You know, we are literally made of matter. We do (laughs) matter. But our thoughts and our programming and our conditioning that we hold so dear, you know, it's like, When you're so angry and you're like, oh, I'm so angry, I'm so full of rage, and then you feel so much guilt for whatever you did when you're so full of rage, and then you feel the shame, oh, I feel so ashamed, and then you feel angry at yourself, and then you internalize that anger at yourself, and then you're angry again at another person. (laughs) Like people are in these cycles, and it's the cycles that are the prison, and the prison is believing that our emotions are more tangible than they actually are because the truth is that, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, you can just watch the emotion pass through you. You don't have to suppress it. You don't have to repress it, but you don't have to attach yourself to it. And I think this is like, 
you know, what I grapple with, I think what so many of us grapple with is like, what exactly is non-attachment? Non-attachment doesn't mean you're some, you know, heartless dick, you know, like the Buddha was smiling, not because the Buddha didn't know that there was suffering. The Buddha was smiling because despite their suffering, despite the suffering of the earth, despite the suffering of others, you need to bring the element of joy. You need to bring the energy and the vibration of joy, even though there is suffering. And so that's, I think, where we have this confusion of how to be, because can you be happy in the face of all this suffering? We have to be. We have to do our best to try to be, because that's the energy and the vibration that will bring more. It's a contagious energy. So it's like, what matters is the matter we're putting out into the universe. It's like, you can find a lot of joy in mowing your grass or mowing, I mean, hopefully with like a solar powered mower or something or like clipping your grass with scissors or, you know, like. (laughs) Let's get rid of lawns. Come on. That's a staunch, that's a staunchy British idea. It came from a place of trauma. It was all showmanship. Let's get rid of lawns. (laughs) Go into the field, go into the woods and, and, you know, commune with plants. Like, just like, I think finding our bliss and finding our joy to quote Joseph Campbell It's not always easy, but it's the pursuit of it that's important, right? It's the pursuit and the journey of it. But just like you said, how how lawns are a programmed, you know, relationship to nature. It's like, (laughs) think about I am programmed and I am stuck in so many ways and I'm always trying to untangle. And then someone will remind me, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, shit, right. I have to untangle that too. And then what about this? It's we're unraveling a sweater and as we're unraveling it, society is knitting. And so it's like a, it's a very complicated web we are in. But I think the important thing is that you keep unraveling and you find joy in the unraveling and you find joy in the energy of it because that's all we can do. Yeah. So that's, there's a few ways to take that. Like right at the end there, an image of like someone like, I guess I pictured an American in like the 20s, but this is still happening in other countries now, just like happily working their fingers to the bone. That like, and that's yeah. not ex- to a degree, yes, you have to find joy in that grind. But also, um, I think what you mean is, is, is further past that. And I think it comes down to habits. Like if there's anything, cause you were talking about cycles, if you get stuck in a negative cycle or you get stuck in a positive, both are just habits essentially. And, um, I, I have an interesting thought slash question for you because I think if there's anything that's going on right now, whether it's our attachments, whether it's our habits, whether it's our drug use, it all is just unhealthy. Like, period. Like, so I don't know. So I have this thought, you know, anytime you start talking about that, the whole system is messed up, especially when you get to capitalism, seeing as how capitalism lifted the most individuals out of control, you know, um, I, I think people fail to see that as the rules change, kind of the, you know, the bar, the bottom of the ladder just keeps getting moved and less and less people can jump and reach it. Um, what is a better way? And I, I guess, what's your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on, on ways that have been done or, or how we can do better? Yeah. I mean, I think 
You know, the interesting thing about capitalism, and a lot of times when you talk about capitalism, people make assumptions about socialism or communism, but I think it's really important to just have conversations around capitalism that aren't bringing in these other um, systems, because the reality is, is that no other system can compete within a capitalist world. So it's like what we're seeing, there are all these kind of adjuncts of ideas that were never truly materialized or envisioned because we're still in this ultimately capitalist world. So it's like, you know, it's like, what is feminism within a patriarchy? It's feminism reacting to a patriarchy. Is it true feminism? No, it can't be because we are existing within a patriarchy. So I think the imagination and the creativity comes from saying like, okay, we want to reimagine a system, but in order to reimagine a system, we also have to unravel the thinking that created the system in the first place. So I think this is where we are in a bind because it's very difficult to unravel all of this work collectively when there's so many people that are benefiting off of us not doing the unraveling, right? So that's why I do think everything starts from a heart place and a spiritual place of just taking the time for the self to do the personal healing because the personal healing has to be done in order to come together and to imagine how to move forward. But if we're all in this competitive hierarchical mind space, it's like hierarchy was an organizing principle because it was easier to self-organize when we had a hierarchy. So it's like if we were in a little tribe together and animals were coming at us or another tribe, it was easier to organize when one guy, the strongest guy most likely, or the smartest guy was like, we're all doing what I say and everyone was scared. And so they said, yes, we will do what you say and we will follow you. And so hierarchy came as a necessity at a certain point and now I think we have come to a place of our human evolution where we can move beyond hierarchy, but we have to eliminate a hierarchical structure in our minds. We have to eliminate competition from our minds and realize, oh no, if we work together, if we are connected together in a genuine way, you know, it's like we see these systems in nature and biomimicry all the time. You see how bees work. You see how ants work. There is this narrative around the queen bee, the queen bee is not someone who's barking orders at the other bees. That's not how it works. The bees are actually working together for a common goal. And I do truly believe that that is the future of humanity is a hive mentality and a hive structure that is about understanding that we do not need competition and hierarchy in order to organize anymore. We have too many tools. I mean, you talk about archaic, hierarchy is the most archaic tool that we're using and it's basically the scrotum of our <laughs> collective bodies, you know? It's like, no, 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 we can, we can do better. Like that, I think that is the most important thing that we have to do. So it's a first, it's a revolution of spirit and consciousness. And through that, the creativity of how we collaborate will be much more obvious and easy to, to enact. Now, Tony, as a, someone who identifies as a man, I don't, I don't know if we have to castrate ourselves completely. 
Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We no, we don't have to castrate ourselves. You are correct. You are one hundred percent correct. See how much learning I still have to do. I need a new metaphor. No, that's no. Okay, so I think that was the perfect metaphor, and here's why. So, as you were saying, kind of like get rid of hierarchy, get rid of competition. I think we need a reframing of those things, and I think this mm. is where this is where ideas like Jordan Peterson's get kind of like people get angry because he's like, look, hierarchy is like 500 million years old, at least something like that. Like it's not something we invented. That's like his point, but it's like, we do need to restructure it. And there's a really good example in this book called civilized to death um, by Chris. Ryan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Chris Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. He talks a lot about um, essentially hunter gatherer cultures and they have forms of hierarchy, but rather than than this as a pyramid, it's something like this. You know what I mean? It's like there's just a slight hierarchy based on necessity. And, um, and if anyone gets too high on too much on a high horse, they're essentially ridiculed. Um, like people, people in those societies do not accept the kind of like um, uh, impulse for individualism that is like, I am more important than thou kind of a thing. Um, and so they use ridicule then like and comedy and then they use essentially um, and then it, it goes quickly to violence if it persists. And these are some of the conversations that um, I don't think are being had either of like trade-offs like what are we trading off for like what would hunter-gatherer life be like what would um because we have this like capacity humans do for collaboration we have this capacity for comedy we also have this capacity for thievery and manipulation and violence and it's kind of like um how do we place those energies in our societies. And um, so I don't know, like, it's like, how do you deconstruct? How do you go from where everyone is incentivized to be the most individualistic, the most uh, me versus you to all of a sudden, you know what, if you do too much of that, we're going to kill you. Like, cause that's how it used to be done. Right. And I will say that the solution of violence, it does seem like a masculine solution, you know? And I, I do think that one of the main – or some of the main voices that are missing in this restructuring are the voice of of women and the voice of children. You know, it's like if you you have a child, you know, it's like you'll, you will hear your child when they start to speak – come up with the most amazing ideas and visions of how things can work and dreams and possibilities. And I think that one of the main problems that happened is that, and this isn't, again, I'm not a man hating or anything like that. It's just that in a time when we had to protect ourselves from a certain way from the elements of nature or the male strength was really relevant in a way that it's not as relevant anymore, um, men's voices were louder. And so they were coming up with these solutions. And 
now we're in a different society. We're in a different ecosystem. We're in a different environment, you know, different technologies. And so I think it's allowing all these other voices, the voices of, I mean, I think this, that's a lot about what restorative justice is about is like opening up the conversation for different voices because through different voices and different ideas come different solutions. So I would argue that like, even though everything, I think the problem is that everything happened because it made sense while it was happening, right? So it's not about like, oh, what the fuck? It's like, okay, that's what happened because those were the choices that got made because of what was going on in the zeitgeist. And now we're in a new zeitgeist. And so what are the choices that we're going to make now? And that I think is where we have to be humble and we have to be open and we can't be afraid of losing power. I think one of the things that's really scary for people when you talk about restorative justice around race or gender or sexuality is because people really fear being in the position of the subjugated. People fear being in the position of the oppressed. And they're like, I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to fulfill that role. I don't want to be in the role of that. So I want to keep things the way they are because my role is at least defined. Like, I think that's why, you know, white women in particular were voting, you know, they're, they were the most important demographic for Trump. And like, Trump was not looking out for women, but white women at least were like, I know my role and I want to maintain my role and I don't want my role of whiteness to shift. I already am going to keep it the way it is. So I think that like what we have to really do is realize that the solution isn't to just shift power structures so other people are oppressed and other people are having the advantages. It's really just about the collective advantage. And I think what's hard is that there is all this um, forgiveness that needs to happen. You know, if you're a woman and you've been abused by a man or you've been raped or you've been, you know, really just beaten down by men in your life to say like, okay, cool. Well, now we're just going to forgive men and we're just going to create this equal playing field or, you know, same thing that goes with race or sexuality. There is this anger that people feel that have been subjugated and oppressed, and that anger is legitimate, and yet where does the anger go? And then how do we then allow that anger to be? But then I think one of the things that's really difficult is that we have to create genuine spaces for people to come together that have caused pain and that have been pained. And that is not something that like is simple. That's like very nuanced and it's very difficult. It's like, you know, have you ever gotten in a fight with like an ex and then like, you're like, fuck you. I never want to see you again. It's like, we know how hard it is to come together with someone who's hurt you and heal. And like, there's so much healing that has to happen. And I think there's so much compassion that has to happen. And there's so much emotional labor that has to happen. But the healing of the self is what will allow us to forgive ourselves and then we can forgive others. Yeah. I think there's a lot there. I think with the restorative justice and the healing, um, like I, I definitely agree. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, this impulse to creating like virtual reality may be like this impulse toward creating a space where we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. It's kind of like maybe if we create fantasy worlds, like we can live in fantasy world or something. Cause like what you're describing to me sounds like all or nothing. 
because like you can heal, you can heal. Okay. Like let's just say everyone who was oppressed um, or raped or anything individually, personally difficult. Um, let's say they, they heal with themselves. They heal with the people who did them wrong, but then you still have, you're still going to have <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Who's like not going to come to your party. He's not going to have that conversation because that conversation, like what it sounds like, cause I think about it. Like if I had to like answer, like if I was sat down in a circle and I had to go through, like there was like a healing process, maybe I elect, maybe it's not something I have to do, but with, let's just say people whose families were impacted by slavery, for example. So I can hear their trauma. I can hear everything. And then I, let's just say whether it's psychedelically induced or like um, through ceremony or whatever, I get to this emotional space where I'm apologizing somehow spiritually and atoning, I guess. And um, ultimately the question becomes like, what can I do? So it's like, well, there's two options. It's like, let's create a better thing moving forward or... Um, or, okay, I have, you know, I don't have money. I guess I just have debt right now. But it's like, if I had money, it's like, uh, is that what the next step is? Do I share the money? And then it's like, well, then you need Jeff Bezos in the conversation too, or it's not going to do shit because he's got all the money. <laughs> not not really, but you know what I mean? It's like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna atone beyond just coming to terms and creating a better system, it sounds like redistribution of of everything. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, what you're saying is that we all have to kind of get on board. And I think the truth is, is that there is contagion in society because we are a collective consciousness. And the more people approach their personal lives this way, the more it will flood the systems and the culture and all of these things. And I think that that's why, you know, it's it has to start with our own little microcosms of our families and our friends and our small world that we create because if everybody just starts unpeeling the layers of their own personal healing and their own collective healing, you know, it's like the things that you – even little things that you've done, you know, oh, man, I wish I didn't do that in high school. I don't ever talk to that person. But I could reach out and say like, I did this awful thing and I just want you to know I acknowledge it and I apologize. I think it's like the practice. Healing isn't going to just be easy. It's a practice and we all have to practice it constantly and be in that. And then guess what? You might do something and be a total asshole tomorrow and then, oh, shit, now I got to heal from that. I don't think it's about perfection. I think it's about living the practice of prioritizing our healing and the healing of people around us. And that, if we all did that, that is a revolutionary act because the more we prioritize our healing, the less painful vibrations we're causing. And the less painful vibrations we're causing, the more love vi vibrations we are creating. And the more love vibrations we are creating, the more powerful that love energy is and the more expansive it is. And I just really truly believe that we're at a tipping point in a certain way and we are the answer. 
you are the answer, I am the answer, we are the answer. The answer isn't going to come from outside of us. It's not going to come from some person in power magically doing what is right or what we think they should be doing because guess what? Someone else will just rise to their position of power as long as we have this endless hierarchical structure. So the true solution is with you and it's with me and it's with our healing. And that might sound kind of like not sexy or potentially boring, but it is the most profound work we can be doing. Yeah. And I think, um, so you actually had a thing about this. Um, you had a video recently about Aristotle saying essentially the goals and the aims of the government are the goals and the aims of the people. I saw that as like Aristotle saying, yes, like top down, like the vet, like the values are being established top down. Mm -hmm. So do you, would you say, so it feels like maybe in the short term, or midterm or something like let's say the next 30 years maybe as a as a midterm I know we don't think past one year but um <laughs> it seems like in the midterm relative to a human life let's call it 20 to 30 years maybe the values need to be healing but then beyond that maybe it needs to be health is that like can we create a, a system of exchange based on health rather than desire because it seems like money is like a representation of first survival then desire it's like higher you know maslow's hierarchy or something but i love that yes can we do it though (laughs) (laughs) yes personal health collective health and planetary health hell yeah yeah. Cuz that's something where we can actually work, we can actually create meaning cuz you do need mm-hmm. you do need like work, meaning. you need purpose, you need yeah. something to that you can get that and that's why I said reframing the hierarchy, reframing competition because competition is still enjoyable, it's still within us, it's still part of mm-hmm. our nature, but what can mm-hmm. we compete on that's maybe better and and maybe health is like the I don't know how you measure that metric. It's different on all levels. <laughs> I'm so but. much healthier than you. Like meditation competitions. <laughs> like, ah, uh, Like we We're just, all, like instead of football games, everyone's just like, mm, like, like yeah, every, quietly. Every, but, okay, so that's really interesting though because it's like, so you know how the Bible has these stories where like people are said to be like 800 years old or whatever and like people debate mm-hmm. whether that's possible. So what's interesting is like they also say calorie restriction and like doing things like uh, speeds up your mortality essentially. So like if you want to expand your life, you should be eating way less, doing way less. Mm -hmm. So it's like if that became the model, would we all just essentially sit and attempt to live for like 2,000 years? You know what I mean? Like how do we exert ourselves the least? But that – that is like so when people describe like mars they're like mars is actually just like it's very static it's a static state and earth is this like state of constant novelty where it's dynamic and eating and consuming and like Mm. so it's like if we is that i don't know is that some form of death like okay we all essentially need to like die while we're here for two thousand years so that we're not hurting anything (laughs) that's really funny (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's fun to think about. Um, <laughs> right. That's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, Just die while we're here for 2,000 years, living in a living in an unconscious like shell. It's very Matrixy, but it's cool. It's more like it's like the Matrix um, 
but like self-induced. <laughs> yeah. Have you read um, The Immortality Key? No. So that one's a really good one. Let's see if I have it here. Um, so this is like the cover by oh, Brian cool. Mirror Rescue. And basically, um, and this is important too, because when you were talking about um, getting rid of competition and hierarchy, um, you were talking about like, can, can feminism exist in a patriarchy, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This guy basically re so he's a classicist. So he goes oh, cool. he goes back and like looks at ancient texts. He goes to like the Louvre in Paris and like all these like crazy places looking for kind of these like source what would you call them resources and he re he basically makes a connection um that Dionysus and Christ are like the same symbolism essentially. Mm. And that like, um, he basically says that there's this like pagan, you know, Eleusinian, if you've heard of Eleusis, um, tradition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of psychedelic initiation. It was run by women. And, um, and he calls it the religion with no name. And then essentially Catholicism, like, destroyed it they destroyed eleusis they destroyed and then that's what the witch hunts were all about was essentially destroying Mm -hmm. all this like um naturalistic pagan traditions of using plants as a religion in a way yeah and uh i'm trying to remember how that connected to what we were just talking about at, at the very end of our conversation but really good book um and fascinating that it's coming out now, I think, like in the midst of, you know, declining church attendance and, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. the new age in terms of um, literally like procession of the equinox, like we're entering a new, you know. Uh, the, age of Aquarius. Yeah. I have people comment yeah. on my TikToks like age of Aquarius. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, does anyone know what that really means? <laughs> like Oh, yeah. It's an astro- astrological event. We were in the age of Pisces right. for 2,000 years, and then we've shifted into the age of Aquarius. Right. No, I, I get the literal significance, yeah. but what are the but characteristics? What, really what are the characteristics of Pisces that are going to – and what are the characteristics of Aquarius? Like what – I guess I'm always interested in the prediction value of, of ideas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think um, – I think astrology is all about archetypes and you look at the archetype of an Aquarius versus the archetype of a Pisces and then the attributes of Aquarius versus the attributes of Pisces. And and I think that from a societal perspective, you know, the age of Aquarius is about potential expansion. So I, I'm optimistic today. Today I'm optimistic, you know, <laughs> I feel – I feel as if we're going to be okay. I do sadly have to go in two minutes, oh, okay. though. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah. Let me see. So so to the TikTok stuff, I'm glad we got into the idea yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> with the, like, crazy dancing, were you making fun of TikTok trends? Like, how did that come to be? And then I thought it was interesting that it seemed like CRISPR was the first one where you kind of really got into doing that. 
Um, the very first one I did was on Instagram, and it was I was I did an interpretive dance of what it was like to be stoned. <laughs> so I was like smoking a joint, and then I was just like dancing, and then going through the process of what it was like to be high, but like expressing it through my body. Um, and then I think CRISPR was the second one, and I was a dance major in college, and I don't really. It wasn't about. Um, necessarily making fun of anything. It was more like the concept of interpretive dance is a little funny to me, but there also is this embodying of ideas that I thought was kind of interesting. Like, what does my body feel when I was talking about this stuff? And I was just experimenting with different ways of making videos. And I brought in the dance because I'm a dancer and I thought it was funny. You know, like I just personally thought it was funny. And there was a, um, an element to it where, you know, you were kind of being a, a, a person that just like talks to a camera was a hard thing for me to do authentically. And so the dance was a way for me to address how weird it is to just sit and talk to a camera sometimes. And so to dance and talk to a camera, like, let's just take it to the next level. It's kind of like a clowning thing, you know, like, let's just, cause I'm by myself making these videos, you know, it's like, I, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's insane. I'm just talking to myself, dancing around by myself all the time. But the more, um, the more ridiculous it was, the more fun I had with it. Nice. So you yeah. you combine writing, comedy, dance, and philosophy in terms of how yeah. can I, you know, what is it, harmlessly get these ideas into people's, like, to think about. And this is just who I am. You know, it's like, I am a dancer, you know, so it's like, why not just add that element into the pie of what I'm doing, you know, so... And also it's like, it's fun to make your body move in unattractive ways because a lot of times with dance, you're like, how can I look pretty or how can this look appealing? And I'm like, oh, I'm actually trying to look as unappealing as possible most of the time because that's what's funny. And so there was a healing aspect to me to just like try to look as weird, like to contort my body in ways that looked weird and unattractive because I was like there's so much pressure on people to always look their best. And I'm like, I want to look my worst in a certain way. <laughs> awesome. Well, I love it. And obviously other people love it. That's why um, I, I found you and we're even having this conversation. So keep it up and um, let me know like when you write a book. And uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I really liked talking to you a lot. I mean, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. Let's keep in touch and um, yeah, keep up the good work and um, – Hopefully we can we can talk again. Yay, and send me those books. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll send you a list. See you, Tony. Yeah, please. Bye. Bye. Okay. I